Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Good evening, everyone. TGIF to all of us. And we begin the readout tonight with a first lady, namely the late, great Eleanor Roosevelt whose husband, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, contracted a paralyzing disease, polio, for which there was no vaccine, and who once said, with freedom comes responsibility. Today, in the face of a very different outbreak, for which there is a free and readily available vaccine, too many Americans certainly want their freedom, just not the responsibility. And it turns out the primary freedom they want is the freedom to be stupid. Take a look at this map. This devastating map, blood red with COVID. Or take a look at this child, just nine years old and hospitalized with COVID, fighting for her life. These images literally do not matter to the millions of Americans who are refusing the medical breakthrough miracle known as the COVID vaccine. They're turning up their noses at it, claiming, you know, they're doing their own research, mostly on Facebook and TikTok. So they know better than the scientists and the doctors. I mean, it's plainly stupid. But then again, Look at who their leaders are, starting, of course, with the mad queen of the GQP, Margie Green. I hear Alabama might be one of the most unvaccinated states in the nation. Well, Joe Biden wants to come talk to you guys. He's going to be sending one of his police state friends uh, to your front door to knock on the door. Yeah, well, what they don't know is in the South, we all love our Second Amendment rights. And we're not real big on strangers showing up on our front door, are we? Well, this is an event, apparently a stupid and guns event in Alabama. Media were not allowed in. Could it be because she just literally threatened to shoot government and public health workers? You know, just a thought. Meanwhile, over in North Carolina, we have Republican congressman and Hitler tourist Madison Cawthorn equating masks to child abuse during a school board meeting. You have muzzled their voices just like you have muzzled our children. You passed this mask mandate without input from those who hold you accountable because you knew it was wrong. You knew it would never withstand the scrutiny of the public. I've witnessed swampy backdoor tactics from corrupt bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., but what you have done here today puts that all to shame. Can we muzzle your voice, Madison? Your voice is stupid right now. These so-called leaders are retooling their party in scorched-earth fashion around vaccine refusal. The alleged right-to-life party that loves telling other people how to live is now championing the right to die and along with it, the right to take innocent people with them by spreading the virus to their parents, their neighbors, and to babies and strangers in the Walmart. This party has blood all over its hands. It's positively homicidal. And their constituents, they're just sipping on the Jonestown Kool-Aid. We're going to be living with people dying uh, if we do not increase our vaccination rates. So I, I still need to, to, to get that message out. What's in the vaccine? Give me the insert sheet. Do you believe COVID is real? I believe there's people dying of of illnesses. I'm not quite sure what COVID is. This is an experimental vaccine. It has not been tested long enough. I'm a nurse. I'm I'm very concerned about the long-term side effects. What will save lives, Governor? And it's not the vaccine. What's in the vaccine? What's in Fruit Loops? What makes them blue? You eat that? 
You put that in your body. Anyway, that is right. They won't even listen to their Republican governors or the public health officials with public health degrees. No, no, no. They listen only to Tucker Carlson and the self-appointed experts in their Facebook conspiracy groups. And their latest trick is championing a new bogus cure for COVID-19 as an alternative to just getting the daggone vaccine. Namely, an anti-parasitic drug used to treat scabies in people and prevent heartworm disease and other infestations in animals. Seriously. But because human doses of the drugs are hard to come by, people are now raiding supplies used for horses and consuming it as, wait for it, just wait, horse paste. Ah, yes, horse paste packed with apple flavor along with sleep drench and swine injections. Anything, anything but the logical, simple step of just taking the free shot because we're the stupid country. Joining me now is Dr. Lippy Roy, COVID medical director for Housing Works in New York City, and David Jolly, political analyst and a former Republican congressman who is no, who is no longer affiliated with the party, and thank God for it. Um, Dr. Roy, I guess my... My open tonight is just a signifier of where I am emotionally with this vaccine, with this virus. I, I'm, you know, I, we started with compassion for those who, you know, were afraid of the vaccine. I was nervous about the vaccine back when Trump was president because he's a psychopath. And I don't want a psychopath rushing a vaccine out before the election just to get himself reelected. I was worried about that. And I had friends that were all nervous about it. My godmother was nervous about it. But once it was explained to me, including on this show by people like you, once it was explained to me by Dr. Vin Gupta how this vaccine came about, where Pfizer and Moderna came from, once I understood who developed the Moderna vaccine, that it's Dr. Kizmakia Corbett, once I got actual information from experts, I was convinced and convinced other people. But there's a whole group of people who don't want to be convinced, Dr. Roy. And I wonder how frustrating it is for you as somebody who's got family in a country, as I do, where COVID is running rampant outside of the United States, where they can't get the damn vaccine, to see people go, you know what, I don't want it. I did my own research on TikTok. How frustrating is that for you? Uh, so, first of all, great to see you, Joy. You look great after your vacation. Um, Thank you. It's, uh, there, there are not, uh, there are no words to really, really accurately describe uh, the frustration, the anger that um, many of my fellow frontline healthcare colleagues feel right now. Uh, you know, if Yogi Berra knew that um, the COVID cases, daily cases are 100,000 per day today, which is the first, the first time in six months, he would just say again, this is deja vu all over again. And it's pathetic joy because we know it's completely preventable. We are in a different much better place technologically and medically and scientifically today, August 2021, than we were August, March of 2020. Um, we have uh, the number one key is of multiple vaccine candidates, vaccine, vaccines that are highly effective at reducing the transmission of this virus that we know is deadly. We are still learning about it every single day. We know the vaccines are effective. And uh, a common pushback that I'm sure you've heard, Joy, God knows I've heard it, um, is that people will say, and my own patients will say, oh, doc, I heard the vaccines don't work because I know people were vaccinated and they still got the, got the disease. 
and they're right. So this goes back to the communication, acknowledging, hearing people out and acknowledging what is true, but then explaining it, going a step further. And the reality is that no preventive measure is 100% effective. It's like saying, oh, well, people who wear seatbelts still get the car accident. Right. People who yeah. wear sunscreen still get skin cancer. So do we stop wearing seatbelts and wear sunscreen? Right. No. The point is that these vaccines, and this is a key point for your viewers to remember, these vaccines are ex extremely effective at reducing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. We have to battle misinformation and flat out lies, joy, with truth and facts. Absolutely. I mean, the reason that people know people who've been vaccinated and still got COVID is because those people are still alive and they can tell you they had COVID because they're not dead. That's the point. Do you want to live or die? Like, this is not complicated. Do you want to be alive? Just get the daggone vaccine. This is not complicated. Y'all don't know what half the crap is that you put in your body. You go to you. You take medicines that your doctor prescribes. You don't go. Well, what is in this? I don't know. Do I want to take this? What's in it? You don't ask. You just take it. Anyway, let's go to over to you, David. I'm sorry. I'm frustrated. You run an no, op-ed, and this going, is what you. Keep this going. Is, keep going. <laughs> this is, I'm just ranting. It's Friday. Um, you wrote the following. Our failure in terms of the vaccine and getting people to take it is rooted deeply in American culture. You wrote we're a free people. We make free choices in the case of covid-19 and the available vaccines. Our choice is either framed as a matter of this sacrosanct freedom or alternately framed as a gesture that promotes the public welfare. And I get that Republicans hate the idea of the public welfare. But does that mean you Jonestown yourself? Does that mean you want to die to, to, to own the libs? Well. Is that what we're doing here? And I, I think what I was trying to articulate is that is the difference of this moment of this generation and generations past, right? In generations past, we could accept personal freedom as well as sacrifice for the greater public good. Actually, out of out of um, narratives of patriotism, that we would exercise our freedom with responsibility. But what we have done in this pandemic as a result of political leadership is Republicans have framed this as a matter of personal freedom in contest with a patriotic duty. And they don't see the two ever working together. And unfortunately, the conclusion of what I write is actually that there are no more persuadables in this in this campaign to get people vaccinated. As the Biden administration announces we've passed 50 percent, I think we're quickly hitting a ceiling. And all of the sound you showed, all the video you showed, Joy, I, I say this not with hyperbole, but but with lament. I think we do have to begin to focus on what is the public health of a nation where only half gets vaccinated and half does not. What does that mean for our families and our personal health? Because I don't think there's any more persuadables out there. I think our positions have become hardened. They've become dogmatic in these red states. If you if you take off in the car and you listen to drive time radio. These are not persuadable citizens. Right. These are people who are resolute. They will not get the vaccine. So what does that mean for those of us who have? You're absolutely right. And, and at this point, my only my, my, my compassion is more directed toward those who are afraid of the vaccine for whatever reason and just need information. People, I've, sure. I've known people like this. We're just nervous and just need a doctor to tell them it's okay. But the people who are just like, this is my politics, good, good luck to you. Um, uh, Biden is trying something new, Dr. Roy, which I think is, is late, uh, honestly. 
They're talking about trying to make it required, requiring people in the Pentagon to get it, um, using federal regulatory powers and the threat of withholding federal funds from institutions to get people vaccinated. This has been done with highway funds being withheld from states that wouldn't lower their seat, uh, lower their speed limits to 55. This has been done before. Do you think we're at the point where we need to stop bribing Americans with million dollar lotteries and just start saying, if you don't get the vaccine, you can't come to the party, can't go to the gym, can't go to the restaurant. Good luck to you. Stay your ass home. You know, Joy, back when the vaccines first came out, like December, January, early on, where there was a lot of focus on um, making sure we address vaccine hesitancy, we addressed uh, try to be, be very mindful of certain vulnerable groups historically who were mistreated. I, all of that was completely legitimate. And so I believe it was the right thing to wait uh, several months to do aggressive education and targeted education and, and not even education, but just listening out to these vulnerable communities. Uh, racially mistreated for decades. That was the right yes. thing to do. And many of those communities have actually come around and are vaccinated mm-hmm. once you gave them an, the opportunity to share their concerns, their worries. I do this every day. As you know, Joy, once a week I work at a harm reduction clinic in the Bronx, which uh, has one of the most vulnerable communities in the country, black and brown patients. I'm treating them for opiate addiction, but I'm also asking every single one of them, hey, by the way, did you get your COVID vaccine? And maybe a third of them got the vaccine, but the vast majority, Joy, they'll say things like, uh, nah, doc, I heard that it's not safe, it's dangerous, it's a plethora of things. And I sit down and I explain point by point every concern they have and why they should get it, why I got it, what my experience was was getting it, why I made sure my mom and dad who are in their 70s and 80s got it. Why why would I encourage something that I'm not even doing myself? I'm practicing what I'm preaching. And that's going to matter, Joy. And ask them what's in Coca-Cola. You know, you can clean your your engine with it, right? You put that in your body. You don't say, you know, what's in this? Am I going to, what's in this? You don't ask. Uh, let me bring in, as the world is struggling to get vaccinated, some Americans must be swayed by a wad of cash, prizes, burgers, hotel stays, while some are turning up their noses at vaccines altogether. Meanwhile, less than 2% of those living in the developing world have been vaccinated, and not by choice. Joining me now on the phone is Sandra Lindsay, a registered nurse at Long Island Jewish Medical Center and among the first in the United States. There she is to receive the coronavirus vaccine back in December. She's joining us from Jamaica, where roughly 4% of the population is fully vaccinated. Thank you so much for being in here, um, Ms. Lindsay. Um, I just came from Jamaica, and what I noticed there is that people were very vigilant about COVID. You could not walk into an indoor venue without putting out your hands and getting a squirt of hand sanitizer in one and your temperature checked on the other, because they don't have a margin for error. I want to put up a map. I don't know if you can see this where you are. I know you're on the phone because we had some issues with your feed. The percentage of people in the the Caribbean isn't represented here, but is very small that have actually been able to get only 4.1 percent of Jamaicans have gotten the vaccine in Europe. It's 89 percent. North America, 86 percent. In Africa, it's 5.5 percent. People around the world desperately want this vaccine and they can't get it. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening in Jamaica. Hello, Joy. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, it's great to be home. Um, so what is happening in Jamaica? First of all, I just want to say that the government has been doing quite well in managing the pandemic, given the circumstances. As you have put up on the screen, we have about 4.1% of our population vaccinated. And that has been related to the competition around the world with getting vaccines and supplies here. 
But I'm happy to say that we now have vaccines on the island. And so the government is working, working feverishly to get the vaccines in arms, um, mm -hmm. doing um, all different strategies, mobile units, uh, etc. But my experience has been, like yours, I could not enter any business place, no matter where, without putting my arms out to get um, temperature checked and also to get a dab of hand sanitizer. That's right. And that That's has right. been consistent across the island. And can I ask you very quickly before we have to let you go, um, Ms. Lindsay, do you have people in Jamaica saying, no, thank you, I don't want the vaccine? Or are people saying, let me get, I spoke with family members in South Africa who all came down with COVID and they all said to me, they want the vaccine and would have gotten it if they could have gotten it, but their gov the government there did not have enough to distribute. Are people in Jamaica, do they want to be vaccinated? So we have a large amount of people who want to take it. As you know, there's hesitancy, um, like around the world, there's hesitancy here, but we're employing different strategies um, to get people comfortable with trusting that the vaccines are safe. Mm -hmm. I am on vacation, but I'm also lending my voice um, to help my country to get the word out that the vaccines are safe and effective. We've done quite well in listening to the evidence and managing, um, balancing lives and livelihoods. The government yeah. has done a phenomenal job with that. So um, I couldn't come here without lending my voice um, to let people know that the vaccines are safe and effective. I must say that we are waiting um, for more vaccines. We've been um, promised some from the United States. And so we are waiting on President Biden to um, fulfill his promise and to also yeah. donate some yeah. vaccines. Well, I hope we that they send... I hope they send all the vaccines from all these states who are saying, no, thank you. Send them to Jamaica because they actually want them and they'll actually not have to be bribed to take them. And I'll remind you, Miss Sandra, that you you worked in the, the hospital you work in is the same one that my husband's grandmother retired from working from. So uh, you're close to my heart. So I want to thank you very much. She's also a, uh, from Jamaica, from St. Catherine. So thank you very much. Appreciate you. All right, everyone. Uh, thank you also to date my friends, David Jolly uh, and Dr. Lippy Roy. Thank you all very much. Okay. Up next on the readout, Trump's pattern of abuse from Ukraine to the big lie. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman saw that abuse up close, and he joins me next. Plus, the Missouri governor finds it in his heart to pardon the McCloskeys, who admitted their guilt, but no pardons for a black man who served decades behind bars and is almost certainly innocent. And major new developments in the fight for voting rights, including the start of a voter purge in Georgia. But first, a breaking scandal in Washington. The liberals have brought back the tan suit. President Biden was rocking it today, just like President Obama did seven years ago, when the right lost their natural minds. That's literally what passed for a scandal before the twice impeached Florida man arrived in town. The readout continues. Look at that tan suit. That's a Sunday go to meeting suit <laughs> after this. <laughs> today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. 
Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. While we all witnessed how the former president incited his base to insurrection, it was in plain sight. We've also learned a whole lot about his parallel effort behind the scenes to overturn the election from inside the government. First, we learned about how Trump pressured state officials directly, including his demand that Georgia's secretary of state magically find or fabricate more than 11,000 votes. Then, just last week, we learned that Trump tried to coerce his acting attorney general to just declare that the 2020 election was corrupt. And most recently, we learned that a Trump-backed loyalist in the Justice Department was intent on asking six states to take steps to nullify Joe Biden's victory. Those abuses are among the reasons that former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid and other legal scholars are calling on the Justice Department to begin a criminal investigation of Trump's dangerous course of conduct. But the truth is that Trump's effort to overturn the election fits a long and well-documented pattern of abuse. In fact, he pursued the same goal using the very same tactics when he leveraged Ukraine to smear his political opponent in 2019. In both cases, there was zero evidence to support his false claims of corruption. In both cases, he was calling for a sham investigation to try and help himself stay in power by destroying the opposition. And in both cases, he sought a public announcement to legitimize his false claims, a declaration of corrupt election from the DOJ and an announcement of an investigation of Joe Biden from Ukraine. I'm joined now by a key witness from the Ukraine impeachment investigation, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, a former director for European affairs at the NSC and the author of Here, Right Matters, an American Story. Also with me is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and a University of Michigan law professor. Thank you for being here. And Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, it's great to talk with you. Thank you for being here. I hope I hope you can hear me. I hear a little bit of feedback in my um, my audio. So hopefully you can hear me. Um, You talk about the fact that when you heard this call with the Ukrainian president, you immediately knew it was an impeachable offense. Talk a little bit about that. That's right. Thanks for having me on, first of all. Um, You know, it's interesting that from the very beginning, uh, although it seems to me that President Trump was surprised that he was president, he was unready to govern. He was always looking forward for the next uh, opportunity to continue his enterprise and continue to profit off his office. And I've witnessed that firsthand in my uh, tenure at the White House on the National Security Council when he attempted to to steal the election very early on. And what we're witnessing now is a continuing enterprise. In uh, In my case, I heard the phone call. To me, it was readily apparent that he was looking to to find dirt on Joe Biden so that he can First of all, undermine his, his candidacy into the primaries so he, that he never made the cut in order to run against them and ultimately to tarnish him before he he was uh, he was a can, uh, he was a opponent in the primary elections. 
You know, and, you know, as somebody who's obviously in the United States military and somebody who sat on the National Security Council, you know, we're now seeing this sort of love affair on the right with people like Viktor Orban of Hungary. We already saw Donald Trump's, you know, being so enamored with Vladimir Putin and autocrats in general, uh, even the North Korean uh, dictator. Did you spy from the beginning in working and being on the National Security Council that Trump was more like those kinds of far-right authoritarian leaders, or did it take a while for it to, for that to sink in? It, it took a little while. Uh, frankly, I knew that he had some um, strongman tendencies, but in my, my view, I, I was actually joining an administration that was going to fulfill um, policy that advanced, advanced uh, U.S. national security interests. We actually did some pretty good work. We drafted a document, a national security strategy, with a Russia component to it, and we implemented large parts, uh, portions of it. The problem is that the president's direct involvement too often derailed the strategy that we had in place to advance U.S. national security interests. It was the president, it was the president's proxies that were uh, acting un-American, that were undermining national security directly. And that's what we had to deal with on a, on a regular basis. And Barbara, let me go to you on this, because... The thing that Donald Trump, you know, the things he did throughout his administration, I objected to pretty much every single one of them. But the thing he did at the end in trying to keep himself in power by perverting the systems of government over which he had charge in terms of perverting the Justice Department, attempting to use every lever of government, not just at the federal level, but to pervert state governments as well. That is the thing that to me is the most Putin-esque or, you know, so the most like sort of an Orban-esque move. If there are no legal consequences for him for having tried to do that, in your view, what happens? I agree with you, Joy. I think that there needs to be legal consequences, and that's about the piece that I wrote that you referenced earlier. Um, I think that there could be a reluctance on the part of the Justice Department to go after their political predecessors, lest it appear that they're simply motivated by politics. But the conduct here is so incredibly egregious. First, of course, they would have to amass the evidence, but to begin an investigation because of the severe nature of the the alleged crime here uh, of trying to subvert the outcome of a fair and free election. Our democracy is all about power to the people, self-governance. And if that election of the people can be subverted, then we have destroyed our democracy. And, you know, it, the risk that you took, I want to go back to you, Lieutenant Colonel Finbin. You write about the fact that your father, and you are like myself, you're the, 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 the son of immigrants, you're the child of immigrants, and your father, who emigrated from that part of the world, he was reluctant for you to come forward because he feared retribution against you and the consequences. And talk a little bit about trying to convince him that this is a different kind of country, because I think that's the question we're having now. Are we a different kind of country than a Hungary or a Russia if we don't do any if we don't you know, stop ourselves from sliding? We are if we want it to be a different kind of country. Uh, we are we are a country where right matters, but only if we make it matter. I think for my dad, he was just responding viscerally to his 47 years in the Soviet Union and uh, assessing the keen risk to me, pressure in that he actually you know, correctly judged that I would lose my military career. Mm-hmm. But in another gar- regard, he was he was not accurate. It's the fact that we have amazing civil servants in the in the government that were a check against a, a presidential overreach. And that's frankly, in, in my book, the president is a bit of a foil. He's a way to overcome challenges in that he's corrupt and there are plenty of people that are not corrupt, that are trying to do the right thing, that are trying to advance U.S. national security interests. 
It is not a deep state looking to undermine, you know, a, a president that that governs uh, properly. This is a person that uh, is very erratic, does not actually provide guidance. And when he does, it's by tweet. And therefore, uh, most oftentimes it's it's damage control. And that's what go the government under the last four years under the previous administration was like. You know, and Barbara, it occurs to me that, you know, I think we just have this inherent belief that America has a permanent democracy, but no country has a permanent democracy, right? I mean, you think about, I go back to Viktor Orban only because he's become sort of the new plaything uh, and tchotchke of people like Tucker Carlson, who did this fawning interview with him in which he sort of bigged him up. And um, Greg Sargent writes that it provided a deeply unsettling glimpse into the true nature of the authoritarian nationalist future that Carlson and his fellow travelers envisioned for us, for our country. Let me play a little bit of that interview. We are an example that somebody or a country which is based on traditional values, on national identity, uh, based on uh, tradition of Christianity, could be successful or sometimes even more successful than a leftist liberal government. Orban has announced that he's going to be president basically for life for the next 20 years. And Barbara, I wonder if you could have a conversation with our current attorney general, who, to your point, really seems reluctant to use the power that he has to hold the former president to account. What I fear is that Trump becomes the next Orban that he finds a way to manipulate the Republicans who are now in power and doing his bidding so that the next time he tries this coup, it works. And then he's in there and we can't get rid of him. What would you say to the current leader of the Justice Department about this stance of saying, I don't know, he wants to be too careful and, and not touch the former president for whatever reason? Well, first, I guess I would say we don't know what's going on internally at the Justice Department. It may very well be that they are investigating, but they're doing it under the normal procedures where you would keep uh, those pending investigations quiet. So maybe it's possible. But if not, and if he is still deciding whether uh, it's necessary to bring charges, I think we have to think about the very significant harm that President Trump came very, very close to committing and could yep. commit again. One of the pur purposes of criminal prosecution is not only punishment and public safety, but also deterrence. And if President Trump feels like he got away with this, then uh, who's to say he won't try it again or others won't try to get away with it again? You know, I'm so grateful for people like Colonel Vindman, who showed such courage and integrity. And we saw at the Justice Department that there were others who perhaps following Colonel Vindman's lead also had some courage and integrity in acting Attorney General Rosen and his deputy, Richard Donahue. But how about Jeffrey Clark, who was ready to uh, be the henchman for Donald Trump? Trump. Mm -hmm. You know, next time it may be that we have more Clarks than we have Rosens or Vindmans. And so I think we do need to take a strong stand that this is a really egregious crime against the United States. Um, and certainly we need to make sure the evidence is there. But prosecutors always deal with, number one, can we charge based on the evidence? But number two, should we charge? Is there a substantial federal interest here that needs to be vindicated? And I can yeah. think of no substantial federal interest that's more important than, than our democracy. Indeed. And there are more Clarks already because the Vindmans have been purged, uh, including yourself, sir. Uh, good luck with the book, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Uh, you're a hero for what you did for your country. So thank you very much. We really appreciate you, Barbara McQuaid. Always appreciate you um, both. All right. Um, and the book, again, is Here Right Matters. Still ahead, Missouri governor, the Missouri governor displays some, uh, you know, interesting priorities by pardoning the gun-toting McCloskeys while two black men languish in prison for crimes that the prosecutors say that they didn't commit. We'll be right back.
Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Family, I want to introduce you to Missouri Governor Mike Parson. He's a mostly forgettable and mediocre Republican governor who originally lucked into his job after the former guy quit amid sexual misconduct allegations. Parson, a Trump lackey and COVID enabler, currently has tremendous power to pardon whoever he wants. According to the Kansas City Star, he's been issuing pardons on a roughly monthly basis since December to clear a backlog of about 3,000 cases that had accumulated from previous administrations. Now, let me introduce you to Kevin Strickland, a 62-year-old man who has spent the majority of his life, 40 years, behind bars for a crime he did not commit. His conviction was built on the testimony of the one witness who later recanted. The two other men who pleaded guilty in the murders have said Strickland was not involved. They even named an alternative suspect. After reviewing the case, the Jackson County prosecutor publicly declared that Strickland was factually innocent and added, quote, Kevin Strickland deserves to be exonerated. Now, most of you at home think that I'm about to tell you that Governor Parson pardoned Kevin Strickland. Nope. Why? Parson told reporters that Strickland's circumstances didn't necessarily make it a priority to jump in front of the line. You know who did jump in front of the line? These two numb nuts, Mark and Patricia McCloskey, they got a VIP pardon from Parson earlier this week. These barefoot, fragile snowflakes pleaded guilty for waving weapons at peaceful protesters who dared walk past their ugly ass house on their way to demonstrate after George Floyd's murder. I guess that was too much of an injustice for Governor Parson to stomach. The travesty. Meanwhile, an innocent black man remains locked up. I'm joined now by Trisha Rojo Bushnell, executive director of the Midwest Innocence Project, which is handling Mr. Strickland's case with international law firm Brian Cave Layton Paisner. Thank you so much for being here. And l- let me just go through the, the facts of the case, if you could. Just walk us through why Mr. Strickland is in prison. Yeah, so this case goes all the way back to 1978. Um, this is a really horrific, gruesome crime. Four individuals go into a home where there are four people. They shoot them all. Three of them die and one of them survives. That woman, uh, the victim, Cynthia Douglas, flees, leaves, and tells, calls police and tells police immediately the names of two of the individuals that she knew and had known from before and describes the other people and says, you know, she doesn't know who they are. Um, a few days later, some time passes and she hears from her sister's boyfriend that maybe Kevin Strickland could match one of the descriptions that she had given. She knew Kevin Strickland and didn't name him immediately after that crime, but sort of the way what we know how memory works at that point, it was contaminated and it just sort of was off to the races from. So she later identifies him, but that's really the evidence that they have and that they use against him. Um, Fast forward just four months after Kevin's convicted at a trial, his co-defendant Vincent Bell, who is one of the people the victim names as being one of the true perpetrators, has his plea hearing. And at his plea hearing, he's required to give in detail what happened at the crime. And he does. He says exactly what happens and names all four individuals who came in and committed the crime with him, including two people who had been previously unknown, and Mm -hmm. says Kevin Strickland is innocent. 
And so that's all the way back in 1979. It's been solved since 1979 and no one has done anything. In 2009, the victim, you know, was trying to reach out to recant her identification. She even reached out to our office, uh, which only had yeah. one person in the office at the time. Um, and unfortunately, she's since passed away. But mm. as you've seen, the prosecutors have looked at it. Everyone has looked at it as a solved crime. Uh, we know who committed this crime and that Kevin Strickland is innocent. But, and the governor claims that he doesn't believe he's innocent, says he doesn't know if he's innocent. And he says he doesn't know. But the prosecutor, to be clear, the prosecutor says he's innocent, right? That's right. So not only did the prosecutor's office do a review, the prosecutor also asked for an independent review from the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Western District, also took the mm -hmm. case to the Kansas City Board of Police Commissioners who said that they wouldn't interfere with anything that was released. So, I mean, a number of different agencies have looked at this and all of them agree that Kevin Strickland is innocent. What happens now? Is there a chance now that he's been denied a pardon? Is there any chance that he can still be released? Well, at any time, the governor could still pardon him, and we hope that he will. Um, that is surely the fastest way <laughs> that he wouldn't have to spend another day in prison. But currently, we have also filed what's called a petition for habeas corpus, which is saying he's being held unconstitutionally, and will you please release him? Um, we have a hearing scheduled on that in November. Um, it's complicated because also in Missouri, <laughs> we don't know if innocence is a claim to get out of prison in Missouri unless you were sentenced to death. And Mr. Strickland wasn't sentenced to death. It's, it's a crazy thing to say out loud, but that is our current state of the law in Missouri. Um, but in this interim time, because another person in Missouri is also wrongfully convicted and the prosecutor also agrees that he's wrongfully convicted. Um, yeah. When that case with Lamar Johnson went all the way up and came back down after the Missouri Supreme Court at that time said prosecutors didn't have an ability to correct an injustice. The legislator passed a new law, and that law goes into effect at the end of this month on August 28th. And once it goes into effect, a prosecutor will have the ability to file a motion to vacate the judgment and overturn the conviction. And so there is that possibility for Mr. Strickland here, which we you know, hope and anticipate well, the prosecutor would do, knowing that Mr. Strickland is we will We will keep an eye on this case, but I, we are out of time. But can you just tell us how he is doing? How is he holding up under this very quickly? You know, he is doing, uh, you know, remarkably well. And I think it actually means so much to him that the world has seen and known and acknowledged that he's innocent. And uh, he's been saying this for 43 years and no one believed yeah. him in, until now. Um, and so we it's a really him. powerful moment. Absolutely. Well, this audience believes him and are going to want to know uh, how he fares. So we will keep up with you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening. And please give him our regards. And we are we are praying for him. All right. Uh, Teresa Rojo. Thank you. Teresa Rojo Bush now. Still ahead. Texas Governor Greg Abbott announces another special suppression session as election officials in Georgia try to purge 185,000 people, most of them voters of color, from the rolls. Of course. Stay with us. Fifty-six years ago today, a Texas Democrat enacted the most significant protection for voting rights in American history. As President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law, striking a fatal blow to Jim Crow voting restrictions across the South. A generation later, the Voting Rights Act is effectively dead. And the Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, is going all in, putting Texas on an express train to Jim Crow 2.0 calling for a second special House session to push new voter suppression laws after Democratic, uh, Democratic lawmakers left the state to block legislation. Those Texas Democrats have been camped out in Washington for more than three weeks now, running out the clock and lobbying Congress for a new federal voting rights protect for new federal voting rights protections. Today, Texas Democratic Caucus Chair Chris Turner said they're plotting their next move 
but are committed to defeating the legislation. I'm joined now by Texas State Representative James Tallarico and Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. Thank you both for being here. Welcome back, um, State Rep uh, Tallarico. I have to ask you how it feels for you to be camped out in Washington, D.C. with your family, trying to stop voter suppression in your state, while some Democratic lawmakers are partying on Joe Manchin's vote with Republicans and acting as if everything is all one big party. How do you feel about that? You know, this past month has not been easy. We've been away from our families, uh, away from our livelihoods, uh, away from our colleagues. But we did this because uh, this fight is a generational fight to save democracy. As you mentioned, 56 years ago today, a Texas Democrat, Lyndon Johnson, signed the Voting Rights Act into law. And President Johnson signed that historic legislation because he believed all of us should have access to our American democracy, not just folks who look like me. We have achieved an enormous victory today. This is the last day of the special session in Texas, and we've killed the voter suppression bill. We did that by staying united, by staying focused, and committing ourselves to the cause of democracy. I I couldn't be prouder of of my 56 colleagues and what we've achieved together. Have any of those uh, Texas Texas, those D.C. Democrats who've been on that boat, have they come to talk to y'all? Are they spending time as much time with you as they're spending on the boat? You know, we're here on a, on a work trip. Uh, and so mm-hmm. we are focused on pushing federal voting rights legislation to ensure that our constituents back in Texas have their God-given rights at the ballot box protected. You know, I, I mentioned to you, Joy, at the beginning of this uh, quorum break that I'm doing my job. You know, I, I swore a sacred oath in front of God, in front of my constituents to uphold the Constitution and not to uphold Greg Abbott's extreme political agenda. And that's what I'm doing here in Washington, D.C. I may not be at my desk at the Texas Capitol, but I'm doing the job I swore an oath to do. I, I, I like that you're focused and you, you would not uh, take my opportunity to insult those who are on the boat. Uh, Latasha, I pulled you, uh, you. You were not intended to be on tonight. You, you were doing your own thing. And I we were texting earlier and I was like, can you come on tonight? Because while Texas is, is the bad news is coming in Georgia, it's already here and the suppression is already ongoing and it is on uh, thousand today, 185,000 people about to be purged, mostly people of color, 45% non-white people. Um, the dear and wonderful Merle Evers, along with Scott Wallace, um, wrote an op-ed today, having to still write an op-ed crying out for voting rights in 2021. That's obscene that she had to do that, but she had to do that. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening in Georgia. You know, there's a couple of things I just want to raise because today is the 56th anniversary. The truth of the matter is when you look at black voters, we have actually less voting rights protection now in 2021 than we had on the signage of the Voting Rights Act. That in itself should be grip grappling to people. You know, what is happening right now in Georgia and what we're seeing in Texas and 20 other bills that have been passed is we're not talking about the damage is going to happen in the future. It's happening right now. 185,000 people are being purged from the voters list um, from the Secretary of State. In addition to that, what we also are seeing is we're seeing the Republicans literally utilize this SB 202, where they can actually weaponize the administrative process to remove people from the voting bo- um, from the election boards that they don't like. And so that in, in case that there is an election result that they don't like, they can do exactly precisely what Trump asked them to do, which is to overturn that election. And so what we're saying is we're seeing this happen in Georgia on a level. We're seeing this happen in Texas, where a special session is being called. We're seeing this happen all over the country. There is no way around this without really dealing with voting rights. And we're going to have to have the kind of bold leadership. You know, I was just reading, um, reading about how Johnson did it. 
that at the end of the day, what he had to do is he actually pulled in. There's a statement where he with the civil rights bill. He pulled in a, a, a senator from Georgia and said, over my, you're going to pass this. We're going to pass this bill. He did the same thing with calling George, um, Governor George Wallace from Alabama in. The bottom line is we need stronger leadership around, particularly from the White House, saying I need to have for Biden a couple of things, three things. One, we need to recess to not end. Just as they have, they found time to be on this boat. We need them to have find time to make sure that they do not leave D.C. without passing comprehensive voting um, voting rights legislation that will protect the voters in this country. The second thing is we need the full weight of Bi- um, President Biden's office. Just as Johnson used not only the bully pulpit. But he was very adamant about this is going to get passed. And he used the full weight of his office to get that to happen. We need Biden to do that. And the third thing, too, is that it's really important for us to recognize we need both. We need the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voter Advancement Act so that we're literally not in a place about just restoring the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but that we're literally restoring it and creating a stronger way for for people of color to have access to the ballot. Very quickly, you were on The View um, this evening. It was the last day of Meghan McCain's tenure. Uh, Kristen Sinema was on defending the filibuster. Your thoughts on her defense of the filibuster just as as a thing? You know, at the end of the day, the filibuster has always been used as a vehicle to stop and be a barrier for civil rights legislation. She knows that, the history of that. But aside from that, even if there was some attachment to the the, uh, uh, filibuster, are you saying, in fact, that the filibuster is a key, is a tool that is more important than voting rights in this country? That there should be, are you, in fact, saying what she was saying, alluding to is that there's more of a, a sense of loyalty to a tool that has been used to disenfranchise black voters than actually literally supporting what you made an oath to do, and that is to protect democracy in this nation. And hopefully uh, the, the, the TVs are still on in the Capitol and they can hear what both of you are saying. It's, an, it's the fight. It is the most important fight. This and COVID are the two things we got to deal with. Uh, Texas State Representative James Tallarico, thank you for all that you're doing. Latasha Brown, thank you for all that you do. Uh, and your moment of joy, believe it or not, we're going to find one today. It's still ahead. An incredible homecoming today. Don't miss it. We close out the week with our moment of joy. Gymnast Simone Biles and her teammate and bestie Jordan Childs got a hero's welcome at the airport in Houston after coming back from Tokyo. The pair were treated to a parade in their hometown of Spring, Texas, days after Biles shut down the haters, claiming a bronze medal in the balance beam after withdrawing from her other events to focus on her mental health. Biles is tied for the most Olympic medals by an American woman gymnast ever, with seven of them. Today, sprinter Allison Felix made her made history of her own, winning her 10th medal, the most for any woman in track and field history ever, taking bronze in the 400 meter. It's her fifth Olympics, the first since she became a mother. Felix could join another tomorrow, could win another one tomorrow in the 400 meter relay. So tune in for that. That is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.